0: And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Good evening. This is part two. Welcome back to all our listeners. We had a week's break for Purim. Hope our listeners do forgive us. We need to relax as well. Just relax. To say <laughs> Yeah. Just to say that this series about 17th century traitors has intrigued people. We have been getting feedback, perhaps more than any other even because you haven't yet said who the rest of the series is about. Was that deliberate?
1: I have not. But the truth is that this is an important series because it has an impact on us today. But I will reveal who the next podcast is about at the end of this.
0: Okay. So just as a brief recap, we were talking about Shabtai Tzvi, his appearance as Moshiach and the fact that it coincides with a number of major events in the Jewish world, such as Tachvatet and the spread of Kabbalah. And he was a very powerful personality, very unique. And he had a presence. He was an incredible Talmud Rachim, too. We left off wondering what the non-Jewish world thought about him, because obviously this amount of fame had ripple effects. in it wasn't yes. just in our Jewish community.
1: OK, although I do want to perhaps emphasize one point which deals more or less where we left off, namely that in the summer and autumn of 1665, Nathan of Gaza is spreading the word about Mosheach to communities all over the Middle East, North Africa, Europe. And remember, he had a vision around Purim time of 1665, in which Shabtai Tzvi's name is told to him or his face is shown to him, and the name of shmei shal mashiach is one of the seven things which precedes creation, as the Gemara in Psochim, the Gemara in the Durham, tells us. So he is convinced, and he convinces Shabtai Tzvi, so he becomes a man with a spiritual mission. And using networks around the Jewish world, using letters, even personal visits, he broadcasts that the Messiah has appeared in Eretz Israel, And Jews from every social class were caught up in a messianic fever. The name of the of God, Shakai, is... 814 in gematria, gematria in full meaning that shin is shin yud nun etc uh, 814 is also the gematria of shabtai tzvi more importantly the numerical gematria of boruch hu shemoi is also 814 which by the way is why some people don't say it nowadays even though this one is without the vav because it's far too close for comfort it means basically that you are saying God's name, Baruch Atah Hashem, and the response is Baruch Hu, Baruch And that's what people had in mind when they're responding to the declaration of God's name. So, you know, you have to put yourself in the zone, the uh, tsunami of passion of fervor that sweeps a Jewish world which is desperate to leave exile I'm sorry to interrupt you there's a thing i am unclear about
0: which I really want to touch on last week why do they believe he is Moshiach if he hasn't fulfilled any of the prophecies in Tanakh he hasn't I mean he hasn't brought the Jews back to Israel and there's many other things that we know will happen
1: okay this. so this is an important point it's true if you look let's say at the Rambam There is a list of what Moshiach has to do in Hilchus Malachim, bring the Jews back, both spiritually and physically. But Nathan of Gaza made it clear that without people's input, salvation isn't assured, which again is a Talmudic concept. Moshiach could have arrived at various junctures in history, but we blew it. And therefore, beyond telling everyone the news, he absolutely stresses the need for tshuva, for repentance, and the need to support Mashiach through prayer and devotion in order to make it happen. So it hasn't happened yet.
0: So the figure okay. of Mashiach has arrived, just the circumstance that would allow him to reveal himself correct. would need us, our yes, part.
1: correct. And the last of the factors that helped him, the Muranos, who have just set up shop in places like uh, Italy, Holland, Greece, Turkey, they would give Sabbateanism its ground troops. And once again, the timing is perfect, so to speak. A hundred years earlier or later, they wouldn't have this support. A hundred years earlier, they were still stuck in Spain. A hundred years later, they were part of the mainstream. And their particular yearning and emotive side, came from a Judaism that had been raised almost in Catholicism. Now, at this point, Shabtai Tzvi is referred to as Amira, which is an abbreviation in Hebrew of Adonainu Malkenu Yorum Hoidai, our master, or perhaps our lord, our king, and his followers were known simply as believers rather than Sabbateans, that was a term used by the opponents, and now, as I mentioned last time, there have been people in the past pretending to be Moshech, But this was added to by a claim to prophecy that had emanated from Eretz Yisrael, uh, because there's no prophecy outside of Eretz Yisrael, which made people listen and believe. Now, because, because the fever is so widespread... The whole of Europe knows about this. We have multiple Christian accounts, British, Dutch, I mean, even places where there were no Jews, in Russia, in France, and from clergy, from diplomats. To point out how broad it was, if we turn to England for a moment, in 1665, our British listeners will remember that there was the plague, And in 1666, there was the Great Fire of London. And Samuel Pepys is writing history at that time, 12 volumes. Very few Jews are living in England. They had just been let back in in the late 1650s. So there may be, I don't know, 500 Jews. What are the chances that Samuel Pepys actually knows them? Nevertheless, he writes in his diary that he is certain that the Jews of London will offer him odds of 10 to 1 that a certain Jew from Smyrna, from Izmir, is the Messiah. Meaning that 2,000 miles away from where Shabtai Tzvi was, non-Jews, unconnected to Jewish communities, were aware of Shabtai Tzvi. It's
0: quite incredible that words could spread back in those days.
1: So quickly. Newspapers, non-Jewish ones, regularly reported on the happenings. And the East India Dock Company, which was based in Holland but had major offices in Germany, reported that in late 1665 they couldn't hire any ships from Germany because the Jews had beaten them to it. Jews had sold their houses for a pittance, they were moving to Eretzsruel.
0: Why did the non Jews care so much? I mean, they surely don't believe in a Jewish Messiah and the.
1: Well, actually, there are enormous potential ramifications to this seemingly internal Jewish event. Firstly, think of it from a religious perspective. A Jewish messiah throws all of Christianity into question. If it happens, then all of them are wrong. And this is potentially a greater challenge than the Reformation, Luther in the 1500s. You know, the Tsar was briefed about it. There were no Jews in his country at the time. And to this day, in their archives, there are letters, newspaper clippings. So that's one thing. Secondly, politically, the Ottoman Empire is at the height of power. Will the most powerful ruler in Europe give up part of his territory? Will he be forced to? And then, I guess to cap it all, we have the rumors about the emergence of the lost 10 tribes who will conquer all of Europe. Rumors in autumn of 1665 were told of the destruction of Mecca by these Jews, who gave the Muslims a choice of conversion or death. Now, obviously, since uh, sort of uh, sensational news of this type could only travel the long distance from Mecca to London by passing through num- numerous uh, stops on the way, in each uh, stop, the storyline and interpretation is altered. In the Muslim world... The destruction of the holiest place in Islam is obviously seen as an enormous disaster. In the Jewish world, the sudden appearance of their long-lost brothers seems to inaugurate the final phase of redemption. In Christianity, although they are sort of on the sidelines, they will either see this conflict as the victory of one ancient enemy over another... Or perhaps from a missionary perspective, it's the precursor to the second coming. And the narrative is of such outstanding significance that if it's proved true, it's imminently the end of the world. You know, the prophecies about lost tribes become so important to Sabbatean believers that at least three editions Of Nathan of Gaza's Sidurim, which were printed in Europe, had engravings on the front with two pictures. The top half was Shabtai Tzvi as a king seated on his throne and the bottom half has 12 bearded men, the 12 tribes of Israel joining forces.
0: Wow, so it's clearly gripped the entire civilized world. I guess that makes the question you asked last time even more obvious. What were the Rabbonim doing throughout all of this?
1: The Rabbonim are split into categories, into three categories. There were Rabbonim who simply had no way of knowing. How am I supposed to know what is going on? Never mind decide on events taking place a thousand miles away. And then there were Rabbonim who believed. Many of them. Why not? They are getting reports signed by other rabbis about an event that they pray for every day and believe in. And even if some of those signatures end up being false, you're a rabbi in Amsterdam and you get this letter which has a slew of signatures on it. Even if you are going to take the time to find out if it's true, whilst you do that, which will take a month or two, everybody in your community knows of the letter. While you're investigating the truth, they are celebrating and leaving you with very little option and very little breathing space. And therefore, even the Rabbonim who were wary eventually said, listen, I don't know if it is or it isn't, but there's a wave of teshuva happening in Qal Yisrael. Let's use it. And that would prove costly in the long term, because when it all falls apart, you're going to have to deal with the outcome. So uh, hindsight is a wonderful gift when you're writing history. It's not so wonderful for making up your mind as to what you're supposed to do in the here and now. And therefore, all of these things are so unusual, so different, that people, even Rabonim, don't exactly know which way to turn.
0: I find the first category quite interesting. You really think there's a chance that Rabonim around the world didn't know about it?
1: Absolutely. I would say the vast majority, how are they supposed to authenticate, especially a claim which is backed by Kabbalah, in which they are not learned, uh, but even if they had been, those those claims have been filtered through various mechanisms and means and rumors. Uh, how are they supposed to know what's going on? What are you supposed to do to find out the truth about events in uh, on a different continent? And then there's the third category of Rabonim, who actively oppose Shabdai Svi. The most famous was Rabbi Yaakov Susportus, originally from North Africa. He was a Rav in Hamburg and in Amsterdam. And in gratitude for his opposition to Shabtai Tzvi, his community threw him out because he's delaying Mashiach. He You know, he calls himself a rabbi, but really he's an apicurist. He's a denier. He denies the arrival of Moshech. Now, wasn't there a cherem signed
0: against Shabtai Tzvi?
1: We will get to what happens if it depends what years you're talking. Um, There are four rabbanim in Yerushalayim who signed, including Ramesha Chagiz, who signed a cherem um, and banned Shabtai Tzvi from Yerushalayim in 1665, but there In a way, going back to what you mentioned earlier, it was more his actions than his beliefs that they could verify as being incorrect. They were outraged when he abolished the fast of Tammuz, and that he was referring to himself using the name Shakai. But even then, they couldn't absolutely reject his ideology, especially because Kabbalistic ideas can't be easily verified empirically.
0: Wow. And where was the sultan in all
1: of this? So he would be the deal breaker. Uh, We need to get back to the timeline to see this. September 1665, Shabtai Tzvi returns to his hometown of Izmir in triumph. You know, Evin Mwasu Aboynim, the stone that's been rejected by the builders, it's now the, the capstone. This is the town he'd been driven out of, and now there are carpets in the streets wherever he walks. For nearly three months, nothing happens. And then in early December... This period of calm comes to an end. Shabbos morning, the 12th of December, 1665, probably because he had just emerged from a depressive into a euphoric manic state. He and his mob of enthusiasts appear at the doors of the Portuguese synagogue in Izmir, which had been locked to prevent them getting in. He demanded an axe, and with his own hands, he smashes his way into the shawl on Shabbos. Once he's inside, he harangues the worshippers and to his followers, he distributed the kingdoms of earth. His brother Eliyahu becomes the sultan of Turkey. His brother Yosef is the emperor of Rome. And when Reb Khaim Benavisti, who's the Knesset Sagdaila, one of the dissenting rabbis, um, asked him for proof of his mission, he flies into a temper and he excommunicates him although Rechaim Benavisti later becomes a temporary believer, whether out of conviction or to save his life. But either way, Shabtai Tzvi on that Shabbos now says the date for Mashiach is Sivan of 5426 this year, a few months from now. And the name of the sultan is removed from the prayers of the welfare of the country. It's replaced with Shabtai Tzvi. Of course, all of this comes to the attention of the sultan. On the 30th of December, Shabtai Tzvi sets sail from Izmir, for constantinople intending to receive the crown to the kingdom from the sultan's hands he is stopped at sea and brought to the capital at the beginning of february 1666 and thrown into jail
0: didn't people see this as a proof that he was just a failed upstart
1: no because the very fact that he wasn't killed on arrival was nothing short of remarkable this is a person who'd committed treason. In fact, Paul Reichart, the English consul in Izmir, wrote that at first, the Turkish authorities imprisoned Shabtai Tzvi in Constantinople in the most darkest dungeon in the town. But later, he is transferred to far more comfortable lodgings in the fortress of Gallipoli. He is given considerable freedom there, although incarcerated. He is surrounded by his followers, and he began to behave as though he were the king already. From his cushioned prison, he sent messianic edicts to the whole Jewish world, including the decree that Tishbev of the Ninth of Av should be ab- abolished, which was widely obeyed in that summer of 1666. And he receives delegations from communities as far away as Poland. And the Turkish jailers basically pocketed bribes from these visitors. They didn't interfere. You know, why should they? They found that these, you know, foolish Jews were desperate to have an audience with their Messiah and they'd pay for the privilege. But in turn, Shabtai's believers felt that the uh, extraordinary tolerance of the Turks is miraculous. Clearly, the fear of God must have fallen upon them, and the sultan must realize that a greater king than he had arrived.
0: With such a great international audience as he had, I'm surprised that they couldn't pay for his release.
1: Well, okay, we will get to how the endgame happens. Now, when these people visit Shabtai Tzvi... He would weep with his visitors. He would be all of the elements that we've described last week. He now signs his name, David ben Yishai, Mashiach Yisrael, who is set above all earthly kings. He might have possibly even signed himself as God. That's not clear. And there are letters pouring in that, you know, through you will be our salvation. Visitors from around the world, the Tuz in Poland sent his son-in-law who comes back impressed and tells the taz all about it he tells him that at one stage shabtai tzvi uh, walked into the the garden or something in the field because people had complained to him about a certain landowner who was oppressing the jews and shabtai tzvi said i will pull up this grass and that person will die which apparently happened
0: well, that's not bad
1: Yes, but the Taz dismissed that out of hand because it says in the Navi, Moshech is able to do this without having to do an action. An action means using practical Kabbalah and therefore he's not the real deal. But you'd have to be the Taz to know that. For everybody else, it was a pretty impressive show. But he has, as you mentioned, a real following internationally uh, camped outside his residence. And then his downfall came about in a way that you could not have made up, Nehemiah Hakoyin.
0: And who was that?
1: Most accounts agree that he existed, right? Not everybody, but we will assume, because the main historians do uh, mention him. Who was he? It's a good question. Maybe he was a Kabbalist. Maybe he was unhinged. Maybe he was an opportunist.
0: (laughs) Maybe he was all three.
1: (laughs) Right. Whatever the case, he was from Poland. He'd prophesied in 1648 that Mosher's arrival was imminent. And in 1666, he travels to see Shabtai Tzvi to convince himself that Shabtai Tzvi was, in fact, Mosher ben David, having possibly reserved the earlier title of Mosher ben Yosef for himself. Now, accounts are sketchy because there are no outside sources initially, only the followers and the Nehemiah himself, both of whom are obviously very biased. Apparently, on the third day of conversation between the two, the final stage had been reached and Nehemiah Hakohen rejects Shabtai's claims and now becomes the accuser. And he pronounces judgment that Shabtai is a false messiah and has misled the people and lied to them and realizes that he has now placed himself in extreme personal danger because he's surrounded by a bevy of people who would die for Shabtai Tzvi. So he does the only thing he can to save his life. In the open square in front of the fortress, where you know Jews and Muslims are gathered, believers otherwise, he runs up to the nearest Muslim, tears the green turban off the guy's head and puts it on his own, which means that the Kabbalist Nehemiah Hakoin who had prophesied the coming of the Jewish M'sheikh Ben David for the Jewish people, had by this symbolic action gone over to Islam. And those that are pursuing him now, you know, shrunk back because they're not allowed to touch him. And the Sabbateans have to let things take their own course. They see Nehemiah shouting across the square at the top of his voice that he needs to be taken to the Sultan in Adrianople to enlighten him about the false messiah Shabtai Tzvi. Did Nehemiah Cohen remain a Muslim? It apparently seems not. He returns to Poland. He now preaches against Shabtai Tzvi. And he says he was a descendant or a Gilgal of Nehemia Hanovi. And these times were so unusual that it gave birth to these people. He
0: doesn't seem like a very regular person. So him shouting against very more trustworthy individuals that he isn't the Moshiach, surely that didn't bear that much weight some uh, ranging depend- lunatic.
1: For the Jews, it might not have, but for the sultan, it does. Right. And he now steps in.
0: So why didn't the sultan just get rid of Shabtai Tzvi? Back in the day, they, they, they killed for far
1: less. Because the sultan has a dilemma. He's obviously not going to release part of his kingdom to a horde of Jewish crusaders, but he couldn't execute Shabtai Tzvi for fear of rebellion. What he needs to do is let him live but render Shabtai Tzvi harmless. How? So, on September the 14th, the 13th of Elul, soldiers enter his uh, residence and bring him to Adrianople under arrest. And Shabtai Tzvi is brought before the Islamic Council on the 16th of September. The Sultan was possibly there behind a screen, but various members of the Ottoman government were there in person and not in the mood for diplomacy. And Shabtai Tzvi is given a choice. You either accept Islam or you die. Now, Shabtai is an international celebrity. He is the most uh, notorious messianic claimant since Jesus. Jews everywhere are breathless for the expected news of how he would graciously, bloodlessly receive the empire from the sultan and go on to establish his dominion over the earth. The entire Jewish diaspora is waiting. In, in towns like Amsterdam or Venice, anyone doubting that Shabtai Tzvi was Mosheach might be lucky to escape with their lives. Now, what the Sultan or the Turkish grandees who spoke in his name threatened or promised to do to the arrested Messiah, we cannot be sure. But the outcome we do know. Shabtai Tzvi accepted Islam in September of 1666. He persuades his wife to convert and he writes a letter some two years after his conversion where he says, I recognize with great clarity that the true God has willed that I should enter with my heart into the Islamic religion to permit what it permits and forbid what it forbids. The terror of Moses is nullified. And so do not believe that I did this on the strength of an illumination, in other words, because I was in a particular phase. Uh, You may be terrified and say, Today or tomorrow the elimination will depart from him and he will regret. This is not so. I did this on my own through the great power and strength of the truth and faith, which no wind in the world and no sages and prophets can cause me to leave my place.
0: And that was that. That was the end of it.
1: So you would have thought that that would have brought the movement to an end. Far from it. It then gets very messy. The believer said, that the very fact that he wasn't killed shows you how powerful he is. And here we turn to one of the central ideas of Kabbalah that is used to justify everything he did that can be understood by the layman. And we touched upon it in the fight between the Gon and the Baal being able to redeem evil, to raise the sparks, being male nitzitzis. You may recall from the Vilna Gorn's podcast that the need to confront and correct evil was a point of contention between them. Shabtai Tzvi is an example of it gone wrong. Chassidus is an example of it gone right. But you can see how dangerous this area is. Being able to descend into the depths in order to bring out the Kedusha, the spirituality. The idea, for instance, that Shlema HaMelech, King Solomon, married the daughter of Parai in order to bring completion, not just to the Jewish people, but to the whole world, specifically on the night that the Beis Migdosh is consecrated, because Ki amin. all the nations of the world will live in the shade of the temple in Jerusalem. So his followers now claim that he became a Muslim in order to bring the whole of the Muslim world, which was the most powerful empire at the time, with him to recognize God. He was being Mesa Nefesh. He is sacrificing himself... For us. And if you think that's unheard of, actually apostasy is a biblical procedure for the Redeemer. Ever heard of Moses, Mesher In whose house did he grow up? In Pharaoh's court, as an Egyptian prince, hiding his true identity. So too, Queen Esther hides her identity. Also the Redeemer of the entire nation, facing its first threat of genocide. She sacrifices her life for us and lives as a non-Jew. And the concept of redemption through prison or exile was another Sabbatean theme. For 13 years, Yosef suffers as a slave and then in Pharaoh's dungeon from a false accusation, all to save the fledgling nation of Israel. Shimshon, right, Samson, acted as a plishti, as a Philistine, to destroy evil from within guerrilla warfare. Each of these heroes redeemed the sparks by descending into the realms of tumour, of impurity, of the klippois.
0: And yet none of them publicly chose another religion, which we know you have to give up your life for as one of the three Cardinal I'm not sins.
1: sure that being a plishti doesn't equate to a you with lifestyle. Being
0: a it's not an acceptance of religion.
1: Of, of idolatry. We perhaps know that this did not happen, but to everybody else, that would not have been obvious. And the same is true with Esther. Um, she doesn't manifest Judaism as her religion. And since the rest of the world is pagan, that must be what she is doing. We might know otherwise from the Talmud, but not from her actions in public. Um, So the job of Jews is to remove these klipois, these shells, but some can only be removed by Mashiach himself, the the final tikkun, and that's what he is doing. And for Murano Jews, it answers a deep yearning uh, for ways to be authentic to be aligned with their tradition in the dual roles that many were forced into having the appearance of evil but remaining Jewish within and you know if his life until now was a problem for Jews now it's an unmitigated disaster
0: it's interesting you mentioned the Vilna Gon episodes before one can understand now why the gone was so opposed to a movement that promoted Kabbalah from a very different angle absolutely um, so how did all his believers react? I mean, obviously, you've said some of them believe that he's you know, Still, sacrificed himself, yep. but the the messes.
1: Right. So for many, of course, there's disappointment and rejection of Shabbatai Tzvi. He's no longer Mashiach, but not for all by far, including Rabbonim. Bear in mind that Nathan of Gaza is still at large and traveling places and preaching. Uh, You know, we mentioned this in the podcast on Venice. Nathan never wavered in his belief. The Messiah had to convert to Islam to assume the cloak of evil in order to destroy all evil from within. Some, in fact, refused that Shabtai T had become a Muslim. They said the story is simply untrue. Were you there? Have you seen it? Some said it wasn't a turban that he put on his head, but a crown. Some said it wasn't him. It was a shade, a spirit. Um, some said, as we've mentioned, that he is sacrificing himself for us. And in fact, he is now a greater person because he's descended even deeper and kept purity to him. And some therefore said, we have to follow too. That is now the path to Mashiach, The redemption comes by descending into the depths and climbing out of it. And they all carry on waiting for Moshiach through Shabbat Tzvi. And the next 10 years is completely unpredictable when you come across Shabbat Tzvi. People are now being taught contradictory messages and behavior from him. Bearing in mind, he has to be a Muslim. So at some stage, he's telling people, keep Islam. Sometimes he's telling them, keep Judaism. Where
0: is he at this time? Is he accessible by people?
1: No, he initially was in the palace. And in fact, it is said that the Rabbonim of Constantinople asked the sultan to uh, remove him because he presented too much of a danger to people, a confusion just... The the, the Rabbonim convinced the Sultan that it's no one's benefit to have him there. So he was removed to a, a distant place. And even Nathan of Gaza was wary of Shabtai Tzvi at certain times. He warns that to the extent that you can, stay away from a mirror, when he is in the state of illumination, when he's in his manic phase, because at that stage he wants to convert everyone around him to Islam. And now, clearly, the religious Jewish path to Mashiach has been derailed, but Kabbalah is still providing a potential plausible answer. Now, his most loyal followers remain with him until his death as an ex- exile in Montenegro where the sultan sends him at the beginning of 1673 that wasn't initially where he was sent but he ends up there and he dies in 1676 he is apparently buried in a jewish cemetery he apparently died on yom kippur and possibly asked for a machzor just before that yom kippur so we have no idea where he's buried no and, in fact, in the absence of any identifiable tomb, his uh, house where he was born is a place where people would go and pray up until, you know, the uh, late 20th century. Nathan of Gaza, however, is still around until 1680 when he dies. And his grave is one that people went to for hundreds of years. It's also now gone. And Sabbatinism rattled Judaism to its foundations. It questioned the structure of Judaism. And now there will have been two main false messiahs, both Jewish, both disastrous for the Jews, one headed towards Christianity and the other to Islam. And there would be followers and believers of Shab Tzhi for centuries afterwards in three main different groups, one of whom were radicals. So it would be a fallout. Yes. Economically, I mean, religiously for sure, a crisis of faith. Who am I supposed to believe? And based on what exactly? The
0: Islamic religion, do they claim him to be a prophet of their own?
1: No, 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 no. He just saw the light and converted to Islam as far as they're concerned. Right. But for Jews, even for those whose emunah was still intact, it was very humiliating. So they start asking questions. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe the rabbis were wrong. Maybe Torah is wrong. Maybe, in fact, Shabtai Tzvi is right. That's the way. And it will affect the learning and the practice of Kabbalah. And into all of this, the Ramchal arrives, Hasidus arrives. You might need to listen to those podcasts again in order to place it in context. It's something we will fully explore, not next week, but the week after. Because next week we deal with our other mid-17th century problem, Boruch Spinoza, the philosopher. And then we will put the two together and explain the effect that they had on Judaism on early modern Jewish history.
0: Thank you very much, Rabbi Hesh. Wow, that was a fascinating two-part episode. I mean, we speak a lot about the Jewish people's survival through the centuries of pogroms and holocausts, but even philosophical survival to have come out of this intact is miraculous. Yeah.
1: yeah, and it would claim many, many victims, even those who remain within the Jewish fold, as we will see.
0: Thank you. So looking forward to next week. said it's spinoza is that a the final episode it's one and a half really okay so we're looking forward to here please make sure to follow and subscribe on the platform that you're listening to this on and as usual please send your feedback your reviews your suggestions for upcoming episodes to podcasts at jl.org.uk thank you for listening